This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, session 216. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Thanks, Chuck. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session 216 you're listening to. My guest today is Adam Gonsalves. Adam is a mastering engineer who is the owner and operator of Telegraph Mastering, along with mastering engineer Amy Dragon in Portland, Oregon. Adam uh, has many releases under his belt, including releases by Willie Nelson, Peter Buck of REM, Elliot Smith, My Brightest Diamonds, Steve Aoki, and many, many more. I could go on. There's quite a list, actually. Uh, And he's also the one who had created, if you remember this, many, many years ago, there was the podcast known as SquareCAD. It was a mastering podcast. And when I first started Working Class Audio, I was told, oh, you need to check out SquareCAD. And I didn't really do too much listening, but I scanned over it. And needless to say, after this interview, I feel compelled that I want to go back and really thoroughly scrub through these uh, episodes that he has. Now, SquareCat is no longer in production, but the episodes that Adam did do are still available. So I, I will include a link in the show notes for that, as well as Telegraph Mastering as usual. So yes, Adam Gonsalves coming up here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Most of you already know about Grace Design and have known about them for years. Uh, They've been around since 1994. It was started by the two brothers, Michael and Eben Grace, who still run the company to this day. And you already know that they make incredible sounding products for us all. What you might not know if you don't know them is that Michael and Eben are two of the nicest people on the planet. Easily approachable, very knowledgeable. You might have met them at a trade show and experienced this. Without a doubt, it's one of my favorite companies out there in the world of pro audio. You might have heard me a few times talking about the Grace 908 Atmos controller. I think the most elegant solution, if you're going to be doing Atmos, that is the best solution out there, as far as I'm concerned, hands down. And prior to that, I was using the Stereo 905 controller for many years. Not only that, but most recently, I have used their 108 mic pre's to do the Room 219 combo jazz record that you might have heard me talk about. The point is, is that they check all the boxes for me. They're incredibly nice people. They make incredibly great products. They're located here in the United States in Lyons, Colorado, and employ a number of people. They're the epitome of a small business here in the U.S., and I just love that whole thing. So if you are in the market for mic preamps or instrument preamps or monitor controllers, this is the company to check out hands down. If you don't know about them, go to gracedesign.com, check them out. And if you're in the market for any of those products, you absolutely have to consider what they offer because what they offer is superior build quality and sound quality. And those of you who bought their products in the 90s that are still using them, you know exactly what I'm talking about. So check them out, gracedesign.com. I know the business of audio is a frustrating one sometimes. The audio part's pretty pretty fun, but it's the business of it and the career part of it that's a little challenging to many of us. I can completely empathize with that. And if you thought to yourself, God, I wish I could talk to somebody about this, you can do that. You could talk with me about it. As a matter of fact, you can book me for a coaching and consulting call over Zoom very simply. Just head on over to workingclassaudio.com. If you click on the menu button at the top of the menu, there is a link that says coaching and consulting with Matt. Super simple. Click on the link. 
book me in for an hour on a Zoom call and we will discuss your particular situation and I will help you get refocused, re-inspired and figure out what is the best path forward for you. If your situation requires a little more extensive conversation, we can absolutely book a series of calls and like I say, get you focused and get you moving forward. I've been there and when you don't have anybody to talk to about it, it's a little frustrating. So head on over to workingclassaudio.com, click on the menu button and book yourself in for a Zoom call with me. And we can sit down and chat, coffee's in hand, ready to tackle the business of audio together. All right, let's get some coffee. Mm-mm. Very good, very good. So yeah, rainy day here again in Lafayette, California. And I've been back from Nam for a bit and had some time to reflect on that. So let's talk about that a little bit. Nam, I've been asked several times how Nam was this year, and I, I can tell you enthusiastically, uh, it was great for me. And once again, I probably have mentioned this several times, so that's why I say once again. I, I think the social element is key. And those relationships that you form or have formed or continue to uh, to have are actually really key. Meeting new people, uh, hanging out with people that you've met long ago. Uh, you know, I just, I really, I treasure those relationships. And whether there's a business, you know, aspect or uh, agenda to that or not, just knowing the people in the pro audio industry whether they're gear manufacturers or uh, fellow engineers, getting to know any and everybody in, in this field, I find truly valuable. Uh, there's a lot of very smart people out there and there's a lot of things to be learned through casual conversation, through uh, business interactions and the side conversations when you're having a, a, a shot of whiskey with somebody. Uh, great, great things to be learned. So uh, if you've never been to NAM and you uh, would like to go, I seriously implore you to go because it's, it's huge. And uh, even if you never make it over to the instrument side, which, as I said in my last episode, is god-awful loud, that's okay. Uh, it can be fun, too. But uh, just the pro audio side alone is, is worth the trip. So... Yeah, Nam. Very, very cool. All right, let's get to it. Adam Gonzalez here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I think this would be a good starting point for the audience. If you've ever listened to the Square CAD podcast, Adam was the man behind that. And uh, that went on for, I believe, 74, 75 episodes? Something like that. Yeah, just just south of 80. Yeah. Um, and when I first started uh, Working Class Audio, many people told me, you should listen to the SquareCAD podcast to get a, a sense of how to do it or, or a, a point of reference. So that podcast was primarily focused on mastering, although you did have a few non-mastering type folks on. What was your goal with SquareCAD? I had a couple of goals with SquareCAD. The first goal was a, was a very selfish goal. SquareCAD started, I forget, 2010, 2011, something like that. Mm -hmm. And that was a time of a, a lot of internet conversations were happening on message boards back then. And it was frustrating, and I'm sure it continues to be frustrating, 
that if you got a conversation going with a couple of people who knew what they were talking about, there'd be sort of this random person that would interject themselves into the conversation, speaking with completely undue authority, and it would just hijack what would otherwise be an interesting conversation. So I really wanted to be able to have those interesting conversations colleague to colleague and just not be interrupted, frankly. The second reason that I started the podcast, which was also very selfish, is that there were a lot of people that I wanted to talk to who really have no earthly reason to speak with me. And if I called them up and said that I was interviewing them for a podcast, they would. So um, <laughs> I, I've been very lucky in that I've, I've sort of had a lot of mentors. And some of those people I met through the podcast, like I would consider Chris Athens at this point, not only a great friend, but a mentor. I met him through the podcast. Same thing with Dave McNair. And getting to talk with those guys, pick their brain, really get down into the nitty gritty of it, was something that I wanted to do. And had uh, the forums that we were on been set up differently, had they been private, had they been uh, not so welcoming of, of kind of just off the street random feedback, we could have done it there and the podcast never would have existed. But because those places are so prone to interruption, I decided to just start a podcast. And then my next question, of course, was why did you stop? I stopped because I unfortunately got too busy to keep doing it. And the podcast... You know, it had a regular schedule like yours. It certainly wasn't as ambitious as yours, but it came out twice a month. The podcast used to hold a really, really important part in my week. Back then, I wasn't as busy as I am now. And so I wanted, you know, the day or so that I had unbooked every week to be productive, right? I didn't want to, whatever, get an Xbox and get addicted to Halo. I, I wanted, you know, if I if I wasn't working... I, I wanted to still be putting effort towards the furthering of my career. And so I reliably had an unbooked weekday back then, um, at least one. And so I would, you know, take a day or maybe if it was two days, do some interviews. And then the next week I would, when I had some time, I would edit them. And that just made it so I was still in the studio on those days. I was still doing something related to the furthering of my career, even if it wasn't billable hours. Mm -hmm. And... That worked for a long time. I did the podcast for years, but it just got, it really got to the point where I didn't, where I got a lot busier and I didn't have the time to do it anymore. And it, it would be a silly thing, right? For me to say, if somebody comes up to you and, or, you know, somebody contacts you and says, oh, you know, we want to rush turn on this, on this EP or this album. It's like, oh, I can't, I have to edit this podcast that I do for no money. So that was the reason that I stopped. I, I wish I still had the time to do it, but I just don't. Do you feel that the information in that podcast is still relevant? A lot of it is, yeah. I mean, you know, the, I would say the things that are relevant are the conceptual things, right? There, there were a couple episodes of the podcast that I did that were effectively kind of like reviews. That wasn't the bulk of the content. If you look at it, nine-tenths of the content on that podcast were discussions between myself and other engineers, other master engineers, other mix engineers, or even gear designers, right? I, I spoke with Chris Muth and Bruno Pachez and and Flores Klinkert and and people who, you know, were, if they weren't mastering engineers, they were part of my process somehow. But there were a couple episodes that were more or less sort of reviews, and they're probably irrelevant at this point. Mm -hmm. But, you know, let's let's take seven out of the 75 and and then the rest I'd say you could listen to now and hopefully still get something out of. Yeah. Well, I, I plan on going back and, and thoroughly going through them. What was the big takeaway for you from that podcast? Was there any overarching things that you learned across that many episodes? Yeah. I, I don't know so much about universals 
But what I really learned is that there's a lot of different ways to come at this. Mm-hmm. And, and the important thing is that your process is is grounded in some kind of some sort of methodology that is thorough and 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 based in a reason, not not just as an excuse to run it through Signal Chain X, not just because you read an interview that says Dave Collins does this or Bob Katz does that, but that you thoroughly interrogate your workflow and the tools that you have uh, and come up with the solution that works best. And the the reason that that's so important for mastering is we we're the last people to touch it, obviously. And you really want to just treat the signal that you're given with as as much respect as you possibly can. And so what you'll hear a lot in those conversations that I had was asking other people how they work and why. And that wasn't so I could copy what they were doing. I just wanted to hear the thought process that they went through to, to arrive at whatever their process was. And, you know, lots of people have very, very different processes and great results are achievable in several different ways. And so thinking through all of that and learning that that's really what's important, not using this specific DAW or, or, or having this specific limiter be your final limiter or, you know, what have you. The interrogation of all of that and how thorough you have to be in it to make sure that you are 100% on rock solid footing in the decisions that you're making mm-hmm. is, I think, the one overall overarching takeaway. That's interesting. And mastering can be, I find it's one of those audio disciplines that can be, you know, people can worry about how they're being judged based on the gear or the gear they have or the choices that they make. I really like what you said about interrogating your own process to make sure it's the right process because the temptation for people to just copy, you know, oh, I see a picture of Dave Collins' studio. I'm going to buy this. I'm going to buy that. And boom, I'm a mastering engineer. Do you think that that applies whether you're uh, in the box, out of the box, hybrid, whatever? Yeah, I think so. And uh, was something that I didn't, I didn't know back then, or, or I, maybe I did know a little bit, but I didn't really appreciate, is that everybody sort of has their own pool of clientele, right? Like there's no, there's no one person or two people or 10 people who can do all of this work. So if you're an in the box person and you, for example, are have low overhead and very low rates and you're working primarily with people who also make their music totally digitally, let's say you're an in the box mastering engineer um, and you work primarily with people who, who make, you know, minimalist ambient techno, let's say, for example, right? And they're, they're, they're doing everything in the box as well. The process that you're going to have and the tools that you're going to use, I mean, are very likely going to be different than Bob Ludwig's process and tools, right? And your clients aren't his and his clients aren't yours. So being really, really confident that you are doing the best job that you can and that you are doing right by your clients. Mastering isn't finding reasons to do interesting things, (laughs) (laughs) right? It's... It's the final QC check, the correction and the sweetening, and the preparation for manufacturing and dissemination. And so the way that you do that, um, I have a way that I obviously think is correct, and it works the best for me. Mm-hmm. I, I'm sure people who do other, who have other setups get great results. And maybe some of those setups aren't particularly photogenic. I think the important thing 
is that you're serious. And you can tell you can tell a lot, I think, if you ask a couple of probing questions, I think you can get at the serious of someone the seriousness of an engineer pretty quickly. And you know, to talk about like in the box and out of the box, my process is is overwhelmingly analog and my entire EQ section is custom. And it took me a long time to through this process of in, trying things and interrogating what was working and what wasn't working and how I could do the things that I needed to do with it, with leaving the, the smallest thumbprint that I possibly could, which is, a, you know, again, something that I think is important and not every mastering engineer does. That's the process that works well for me. There's as many ways to approach this as there are mastering engineers. Obviously, there's no governing body. And if you're, yeah, and if you're doing a good job, then your clients will come back and they'll appreciate the job that you do. And it, it I, I think, I think more weight is is put on that by engineers than on your clients, right? Your clients, by and large, I think, want to know that you're serious and want to know that you do a good job. And, and outside of that, man, I don't really think they care. <laughs> yeah. and, 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 you know, because the, like, so you have to avoid red flags, right? Like if you, oh, you know, if you have a website and the only things that are on your website are pictures of a white Ikea desk with two rockets on it, then, um, or, you know, a pair of, like Apple headphones, like, okay, well that, you know, that might send the signal that you're not that serious. <laughs> uh, and people, you know, will, I think, judge you for that rightly or wrongly. But there are people who do in the box mastering who have a client list that's very deep and who have very good results. And so good for them. Hey, our friends over at DistroKid have created the DistroKid app for Android, which allows you to do some key things such as Check your stats from Apple and Spotify, edit release metadata, upload new releases, and a host of other features. And remember, WCA listeners get 30% off your first year at DistroKid. And if you just head on over to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30, you can follow the link, get your 30% off, and be off to the races. So check our friends out at DistroKid and make sure and get your 30% off by going to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30. There doesn't seem to be a universal approach to mastering. There's the, you know, the high and mighty goal of of do no harm and all that. But my experiences have told me that as much as mastering engineers say that they don't want to put an imprint, there's clearly an imprint when you when you compare engineer to engineer pro- on the same project. Yes. So there's there's a couple things we have to keep in mind. First of all, even though mastering is the the probably the most technical part of the album production process before we get to manufacturing, it's still art, right? And so art is going to reach people in different ways. The music is going to reach people in different ways, and it's going to be interpreted by the engineers differently because they're all separate people. Mm -hmm. And as you say, because there's no governing body that gives you a license to be a mastering engineer, there's lots of people with lots of different dispositions. And the the first thing I'll say before I get into the meat of your question is that Firstly, not everybody would agree with the transparency thing. There's mastering engineers I know who are well regarded, who are like, look, man, I'm going to like you hire me because I get like because I send it through these beefy transformers in my console. And like I really roll up my sleeves and like put my like like it sounds like me when it comes out of my studio. That's not my disposition, but it is a disposition and it works well for those people in terms of transparency and and getting things prepared and and your experience of sending it to a couple mastering engineers and getting things back that sound very different. Yeah, you would expect that, right? Everyone's chain is going to be different. 
um, the tools that they use are going to be different, and the emphasis that they put on things are going to be different. Like if you, and this is why it's uh, it's so important when you're choosing tools and process and mastering to be really, really conscious of the choices that you're making because we're working on the two track, right? So everything that you do, I'm not even talking about signal processors. Let's just talk about conversion. Like your choices of conversion are going to have an impact on the way that things sound before you're even monkeying with the signal, if you monkey with the signal. Yeah, there's so many different ways to tackle this. And every every step of you, just small steps, game staging from one you know processor into another, how hard you hit the A to D, what type of A to D you're using. But, you know, are you limiting in one step or several steps? Are you like, these are all decisions that if someone's listening to a piece of music or a collection of songs and they're trying to do all the things that you do in mastering, which is um, make sure that they are conversant with one, with one another. And by that, I mean like they sound like they are, they are of a piece with one another. They all belong on the same album, you know, so tracks two and four, or a little bass heavier than everything else, right? So do you increase the low end profile of everything else on the album? Or do you thin out the bass of those two tracks? Or do you print them flat and just, you know, assume that the artist wanted those two tracks to be extra bass? Like, and how you communicate with the artist about what their goals are. These are all things that are going to vary a lot based on the mastering engineer that you choose. Just to, to recap my very, very long answer to your very simple question. First of all, transparency is not everybody's goal. I, I think it should be, but you know, but it isn't. And for the people who are trying their best to do what I think good mastering is, which is present the mixes in the best possible light mm-hmm. and make sure that the best of them is heard and then assembling them in, in the way that the artist wants and prepare them for whatever release formats the artist is going to be using. Man, there's so many different ways to do that. And you're, of course, you're going to get different results. Of course. I want to shift gears a little bit and go back to uh, go back in time a bit for you. You went to NYU, correct? For and, graduate school. And got a, a master's degree in music technology. Is that right? That's correct. Why did you choose music technology? And was that part of a bigger plan to get into mastering? Or were you already in mastering at that time? I was not in mastering at that time. At the time that I got accepted to NYU, I was living in D.C. And I was... Um, I was engineering at a studio there, moonlighting when I had a day job. And as you know, there's not a lot of avenues in our industry for, you know, improving yourself through higher education, right? It's still mostly a kind of a journeyman way to get into things. Like maybe you have an apprenticeship if you're lucky, but most people just kind of start trying mm-hmm. stuff, I would say, these days and uh, and get feedback from from their friends or their bandmates or, their, or clients if, they're, if they have them when they start as to whether or not they're any good at it. So the, I had heard that it was the first year uh, that NYU was going to be offering a master's degree program in music technology. And it was a really, I forget exactly how many spots the first class was, but it was a very small first class. I, you know, the, the school, um, it, back then it was in the Steinhardt School of Education. I don't know if it still is. But they were, you know, I, they had an undergraduate program in music tech. We're trying out the graduate program. It was a small first class. And I thought, you know, what the heck, I probably won't get in, but I'll apply. So I applied, I put together like a collection of a bunch of stuff that I had worked on and I sent it in and I got in. And at that point, my relationship with mastering was, I think, what a lot of people's relationship with mastering is. They don't really understand it. Um, I I certainly didn't understand it. I just knew that there was this guy that I trusted 
and I would send stuff off to him and it would come back sounding way better and it made me look really good in front of my clients and that's that is really as much thought as I gave it <laughs> and <laughs> and uh, and my you know it was not my goal in the beginning to be a mastering engineer but when I got to New York uh, as you can imagine the facilities at NYU are pretty nice some of them you know the the B room was was a, a room that was a lot like you know I think a lot of bedroom producers have the, the B room at NYU is nothing special, but, but some of the bigger studios were really nice. And I got to actually be in an actual mastering studio with real mastering engineers who were teaching me. And I instantly was like, Oh, I'm going to be better at this. It's, it suits my, I think it suits my personality better. It suits my talents better. It's just like, yeah, this is, I'm, Oh, this is what it is. Okay. I'm, I'm going to be naturally better at this than I am going to be at tracking and mixing. And so from that point on, I started to sort of veer my attention in that direction. Fast forwarding, probably through a lot of uh, detail, how did you wind up in Portland? I wound up in Portland because I got hired out of my program at NYU and uh, to help somebody build a studio in Oakland and work at a studio in Oakland. And so I moved cross country and I helped this person build a studio, and then I worked a little bit out of that studio. And the, f- the first very, very modest, very tiny incarnation of Telegraph was in Oakland, uh, uh, Telegraph Avenue. Yeah, yeah. Just for the audience, and, we're, we're talking about Oakland, California. Oakland, California, yeah. yeah I, which I, I'm actually I, 10 miles away from. Oh, cool, yeah, yeah. I, I, live, I live by Lake Merritt, which is this urban lake in Oakland. That's where I actually started mastering under the name. Telegraph. Um, and that seems like that was, this is like 2006, 2007. Hmm. And I was happy. I was really happy in Oakland. Uh, but you live in the area and I think you know what, what rent is like and what the creep away from San Francisco is like. And I had looked, I looked solidly when I was, when I felt like I was ready, I looked solidly for a year. I mean, every weekend for a, you know, a better place to move the studio, a, a proper place, not me working out of you know, half time out of somebody else's space or not me just doing stuff out of a converted room in my apartment, but a real space. And I looked for like a year, almost exactly. And I couldn't find anything that, that was affordable. I mean, the, the close, the closest thing that I found was a place in Alameda that like didn't even have any floorboards down. It was just like joists and the dirt. And that was still like a thousand dollars a month. That's out of my budget. <laughs> and uh, I had been to Portland before and I really liked it. Yeah. I just decided to give it a try because, because I realized, I mean, I, I realized effectively, you know, for economic reasons, I probably wasn't going to be able to make it work in Oakland on any kind of timeline that I felt was reasonable. Which is a, a great disappointment on so many levels to me that, you know, somebody, you know, like yourself had to leave because of, of, those reasons. But yeah, Portland, I will sing its praises. I'm a big fan of Portland. Love the atmosphere, food, people, and uh, the low cost of living, lower cost of living. And uh, so did you end up uh, renting a place or buying a place? I ended up buying a place. And it's the place that I've worked out of. This year, I'll be moving into a new studio, but I've been working out of this place for nine years. And yeah, as, as you say, in 2009, 2010, when I was moving to Portland, the, it was like moving from Oakland to Portland was like, was, it, was, it was effectively like life was, was on sale all of a sudden. Like I had gotten a coupon for everything. Like, 
<laughs> Life was on sale. That's, like, a, mean, that's the like, quote of the century, man. <laughs> but, you know, like food, like uh, rent slash mortgage, um, you know, entertainment, like everything was perhaps not an order of magnitude cheaper, but noticeably cheaper. And, and that, I think that that when I was really starting out in, in what would be like the first, what I would consider like proper incarnation of Telegraph, like it was just having that breathing room was less stress and allowed me to be a lot more flexible and made it so that I could take more risks with less fear of like catastrophic failure. And, uh, Portland is a little bit less like that. Now the secrets out, the difference might not be that dramatic anymore, Mm -hmm. but it was, yeah, that, that economic component was, was I think key to me getting started. Did you buy the building right when you, like, when you got there or did you rent for a period of time? It's interesting. So I bought a house and behind the house, it wasn't quite a garage. I think the person who owned the house before me used it to store like boat parts. There were a lot of boat parts in there. Hmm. And so it it sort of looks like a barn. It was perfect for doing a studio build out because it was just totally just this raw, open, totally unheated, uninsulated, just structure that was sitting behind this house. Um, and it was plenty big enough. So I did a proper studio build out there. And that's the building that I started out of and continue to work out of now and will be transitioning out of this year. Uh, what's the cause of the transition? Yeah, I'm moving the studio into a space that's a little bit bigger. And I have, um, if you're listening to old episodes of Squarecad, Thomas Juangin, who is the acoustician who works at Northward Acoustics, um, designed a room uh, for me. I have some... Uh, I'm leaving that house and I have some concerns about the neighborhood and noise and the way that the neighborhood is transitioning. And right now it's fine, but in two years it might not be. And I kind of see the writing on the wall there. If you're mastering and you're cutting vinyl and there's pile drivers outside your door um, because they're building apartment buildings everywhere and probably will be for years to come, that's going to be a distraction. And that neighborhood isn't there yet, but it's getting there. And so... I'm in advance. I, I, right, you want to leave on your terms, not when you're forced. And so that's what I'm doing. So will you ultimately sell that, sell the house? Yeah, the fate of that is uncertain right now. When did you get into cutting vinyl and who mentored you in that world? Right. So this, this gets back to a little bit of, of, the, of the podcast and, and connections that I got to make through doing that. The, the people who got me into vinyl mastering and ultimately lacquer cutting are all great friends now and people who I met directly from doing that show. And I had, you know, in my, in the mentorship of sorts that I had had in, in New York, you know, there, there's this drumbeat from older engineers, like, you know, real engineers cut lacquers, right? And so you, you know, you hear that enough and you sort of internalize it, but I didn't know where to get started on that process. I didn't know where to get the equipment. I certainly didn't know where to find a lathe, but I started to learn more about it through talking with people in the podcast. And if you look at the, some of the people that I spoke with, Al Grundy, who unfortunately has passed away, he's, he's like, you know, the, 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 he was like the, the Pope of Neumann lacquer cutting in America. Like he, he, that guy touched so many people's lives and professional careers. And the guy who taught me is a guy named Len Horowitz, who runs a place in California called the History of Recorded Sound. And Len has been working on lathes, I mean, since he was a kid, man. And he's a he's a lathe tech in California. He's also just an all-around tech. I mean, he's running around everywhere 
helping people fix their tape machines and stuff like that. But he restores lathes. And I got in touch with Len and he's, he's sort of a character. And he told me that there was, that he could help me find a lathe and told me how, how much he thought it would cost and how long it would take. Turns out both of those estimates were completely wrong. <laughs> but <laughs> <laughs> 10 times as long, um, 10 but, times the cost. But yeah, I, you know, I would go down to California and learn with Len. I sat with Len a lot, watched him cut. He watched me cut and would correct my technique. And he, you know, he was slowly working on rebuilding the cutting system, both the, the mechanical lathe as, as well as the, the rack, the electronics that, um, that power the cutting head. At the time, it was a, fl- a frustratingly slow process, but I'm glad that it was so slow and the, 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 the progress through it was so incremental because it really allowed me to absorb all of the lessons that I was being taught fully. And so, you know, enormous respect and huge shout out to Lynn for getting me started on that aspect of my career. And his, his place is called The History of Recorded Sound. And, you know, the, the, there's there's different lathe topologies. There's, you know, there's different f- platforms, if you will. But the two main ones, if you want to be do this at the professional level, not as a hobbyist, not, you know, uh, and there's people who do that. And man, and that's awesome. Like if you have a Presto and you run a label where you cut your own seven inches and they're like and it's noisy and it's cool. That's awesome. I love that stuff. But if you want a lathe that'll cut you any kind of record and sound fantastic doing it, it th- there's basically two choices, right? You can get a Scully or a Neumann. Uh, you know, Al, Al Grundy was like, the, he was the Neumann guy and Len was the Scully guy. And so I learned on Scully's, which are manual machines. I mean, you're, you're adjusting pitch and depth manually, or at least my Scully was. And uh, a friend of mine, Paul Gold, ha- has the saying that I really like, there's no way like the hard way. And that is the hard way. Learning that way was so valuable. It was so frustrating, but it was so valuable because you learn the absolutely the fundamental level, the mechanics of how a record works and how vinyl works. And because you're, you're, I mean, you're doing, you're doing it. A computer is not helping you do it. Even an analog computer from the seventies is not helping you do it. And it, it made it so that when I, you know, eventually moved from a Scully to a Neumann cutting system that had some automation, not only did I appreciate that jump more, but I realized what the machine was helping me do. And that, that sort of lets you play the machine a little bit like an instrument. And it, yeah, it 100% made me a better engineer. And my, um, I have a, a mentee who was, who was previously my assistant, and now she just works with me. I mean, you know, uh, and I made her learn manually as well. And I, I think she would tell you the same thing. So it's, it's not just me. I, it's, uh, it's the, the process has been repeated more than once. <laughs> yeah. Well, we could, we could do a whole show just on vinyl and the intricacies of that. Uh, I assume vinyl business is good for you. Yeah, it's, it's good. It's not like quite half of my business, but it's a solid chunk of my business for sure. Okay. Um, let's talk a little bit about your business. One thing I noticed on your website is, is for unattended mastering, it's 60 bucks a tune and, I believe for attended mastering, is it 120 an hour? That's correct. Uh, of course, clients attending, that can slow things down a bit. And when you don't have anybody there looking over your shoulder, you can you can move at a quicker pace. Uh, would you agree with that? A soft yes, man. I mean, I let me say this. I like attended sessions, and I wish all ses- sessions could be attended. I would say that most of the time, the price between the difference in price between an attended and unattended project is not that different. Like if somebody attends, 
And at the end of the day, we look at, or the end of the session, we look at what the, you know, what, how they ran the meter up. Um, it's usually very, very close to the unattended price. And sometimes it's even less. The reason that there's that price difference is, you know, 60 times two is 120. I can usually do two, tra- two tracks an hour. And if I'm slower than that, because somebody, you know, brought the entire band and all the band's girlfriends, and everybody wants to, you know, touch the tape machine and ask me questions, well, then I'm going to work slower. But most clients aren't like that. Most clients come in, we have a cup of coffee, I give them the lay of the land, and the first song or two usually goes a little slower, but then you kind of pick up speed. And th- this is obviously project dependent, right? If we're doing a compilation, if the, if the record was recorded, you know, half in a studio, uh, a third, you know, a quarter in your bedroom and then a quarter at a, a guest house at the coast, the, like getting all that stuff to, to sound, you know, coherently together is going to require a little bit of extra work. So that could certainly slow things down. But I don't find a, a big difference in cost between attended and unattended sessions. And the, the hourly pricing is there definitely to protect myself in case the wheels come off the bus. Um, but it's, it's more, I think, the, the choice that my clients seem to make is a choice based on turnaround time and experience, the kind of experience that they want to have. Some people are really, they don't want to listen to their record for a whole day by the time they finished recording it and mixing it. They'd really just rather hand it off to somebody and let them do what they do and then get it back and comment on whether they like it or not. And some people really want to be in there with you, like, you know, with their hands in the dough like as you're getting everything ready. So there's that experience part of it, and that just varies artist to artist. I'm happy to do both. I, again, I have a slight preference for attended sessions um, because I like talking with people about their art and I like getting immediate approval on things. So, you, you know, you preclude revisions when you're working attended, which is very nice. But the other thing is is schedule, man. I, there, isn't, there isn't time to do everybody's record attended, unfortunately. You know, I don't really work on weekends anymore. Uh, so sometimes, you know, artists have regular jobs man, and they, and they work during the week and they're like, Oh, the, you know, the only time I could do it, I could start a session at like 7 PM on a Saturday. It's like, I'm no, we're, I'm not doing that. So sometimes our schedules just can't line up and we end up having to just do the, the, the album unattended, you know, just because there's no openings in their schedule that would allow them to have the record out in the time frame that they want. Yeah. So it's, it's usually not a price thing. The, the price, at least for me, tends to be, they're right in the ballpark of one another. About a year and a half ago, I signed up for Sampley.app and I have to report back and say that I'm completely thrilled with it and it's working out quite well. It gives me the ability to upload mixes and masters to the website and provide a super pro looking interface for my clients. They can drop comments in the timeline. They can listen on any device. They can listen to it in high res. And if I want them to pay for the mix or master before they download it because of the Stripe integration, I can set that up. There's also Dropbox integration, which allows me to quickly create a folder in my Dropbox, which automatically syncs with Samply, makes it much more simple. You should check it out for yourself, but there's a deal to be had. So use the code WCA20. Go to Samply.app or Samply.app. Use the code WCA20, get 20% off, and you'll be off to the races. It's a fantastic tool that I think you're going to enjoy and will definitely make you look a lot more pro when you're delivering files to clients. Skip that whole business where you send it to them over Dropbox. That looks totally amateur at this point. Use Sampley.app and use that code WCA20 and I think you're going to be really thrilled. Sampley.app. Check it out.
I have kind of a, a, a very broad question here. Your What is your philosophy or approach to business, money, money management, how to stay alive, how to, how to keep the career moving forward? I'm, so let me just say right off the bat, man, I'm very lucky. I have great clients. I have a ton of return clients and I do not advertise. I advertised once and it didn't bring in the kind of clientele that I wanted. So I haven't since. Um, so people generally find me from the old school way, like looking at credits or word of mouth. Mm. Um, so I don't, I really don't put a lot of effort into like chasing down new work and scaring up work. Uh, because the labels that I work with, the mix engineers who trust me with their mixes, and then the artists who come back to me just tend to come back. And they also tell their friends. So that's good enough for me. And, and as I said, man, like that, you know, to return to an earlier point that was kind of a throwaway point, I can, I can only be as busy as one person can handle. I can't master everybody's music. So that's good. That's, that's good for me. In terms of my, my outlook about, you know, the, I guess, business and money. Yeah, this I, I don't know. I'm, I'm not a person who like understands like money tricks or games with money. I can't take money and do something with it. And then like abracadabra, it's more money. Like I just, I, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't think in, in this audio world, uh, there's very few of us that can do that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I just, I don't know. I, the work ethic that I have is just, you get up, you put, you know, your shoes on one at a time and you go to work. And if you do a good job, there'll be some money at the end of the day for you. And that's how I do it. And I have, I have enough money to, to meet my expenses. I, I'm, I, I guess I would say that I'm fairly conservative. You know, this new studio build that I'm doing, I've been saving for, for years. I don't finance much stuff on credit, things like that. Like, so I move carefully with money, I suppose. I think for a long time, there's this period, right, when you're starting, there's stages that you go through, right? You, you, so let's say you're, you're starting a studio or you're, or you're starting to freelance. And the, fir- the first part is, is like, this is, there's a ton of anxiety, right? Like, can I fly? Like if I, you know, when I, when I make this leap off the top of the, the building, am I going to be able to fly? Am I going to glide? Am I going to crash? I don't know, right? And you do that for a while. Maybe you're hustling, you have a couple gigs. Maybe you did it the way that I did. Right? I, I kept a day job for you know, the first couple of years that I was working. Not a day job that took a lot of time out of my week, but it was a, a job that I could work partially remotely from. Mm-hmm. And, you know, just so that I knew that there was a baseline of income. Like if I just had a weird month where I wasn't, wasn't, didn't book enough sessions, right? So that, that goes on for a while. And then one day you realize, wow, I'm really busy. I'm, I'm like booked all the time. Like I'm doing, I'm doing it. This is really happening, you know? So you move from that stage to the next stage. And then after a few years of that, you realize this, this isn't a fluke. I don't have to worry like month to month, like whether I'm going to like, this is, I guess this is my career now. I guess this is what I do now. Yeah. And, um, once you have, once you're, you're in that place, the money aspect of it, I mean, it kind of becomes just like, any other job. I, you know, there's a range of, you know, some, some months are certainly busier than others, but there's definitely like a range of, of, of income that comes in. Um, and, and even at the low end of that range, it's comfortable in terms of me, like clearing my overhead and meeting my expenses. And I'm not somebody who like needs to rush out and get the newest was bang piece of gear every time, you know, the press, the press stuff comes out of NAM or 
AES. Um, as, a, as I said, my entire EQ section is custom. I built that slowly. My A to D converters are custom. The, a, a lot of the tools in the studio, the things that I think sometimes get people into financial trouble when they're sort of chasing down expensive things that are interesting, I don't because I have just thought really carefully about what I need and what I don't. And the stuff that you need will make you the money back that you spend on it hundredfold. And, and the stuff that you don't is probably interesting and might be a little bit fun, but you know, if you're looking at it in the cold, sober light of day, you can, you can honestly say to yourself, yeah, I don't, I don't need that. And yeah, I don't. And then I guess in terms of just, that was a lot to say about money, but I guess just in terms of business, you, there's people who advertise and do awesome at it. And there's, and there's people who, you know, gin up interest in, in their studio or their careers as engineers in, in ways that are, that are kind of, um, uh, very, very proactive and sort of at, almost activisty. And I really don't, I've done it very slowly. I think the, you know, the most ironclad recommendation or, or, or advertisement that you can get from people is, is an honest, you know, testimonial from somebody who had a good experience with you and that's spreading word of mouth. And that, and that is a slow way to build a business. Let me tell you, it takes a long time, <laughs> but I bet. Yeah. But, but once you, once you're there and you, you know, and your, your Rolodex is deep enough with those people, the work comes and it's fine. And, the, and, you know, and that, I think that that attitude of just like, look, I want to do the best possible job for my clients and make sure that they're not just thrilled now, but in five years when they're working on their next record or, or two records away, they can look back on this record and still be proud of the way that it sounds and proud of the, 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 the masters that they got back from me as being the best representation of how that could have happened at that time. Just do that. And people still recognize good work. I know everyone's attention is pulled in a million different directions these days, but like people do still recognize and appreciate good work. And if you focus on that, yeah, more work will come. Our friends over at Cali Audio have just introduced the brand new LP UNF system, which is meant to give you everything you need from a studio monitor in a package that you can basically set up anywhere. And the system is specifically designed for your desk. So no matter how else you're using your desk, reflections from the drivers to the desk to your ears are accounted for giving you a perfectly clear picture of your mix that you can rely on to translate well. Whether you're putting them on stands behind your desk, on a desk away from walls, on a desk against a wall, on a desk on speaker stands away from the walls, there's a number of configurations and they have settings on the back to accommodate all of that and more. And if price is a concern, never fear. They're priced at $299. That's right, pretty affordable. Head on over to caliaudio.com and check out the new LPUNF. We're about out of time, but I do want to touch on this. Uh, you mentioned you don't work on weekends. Um, I want to talk about work-life balance with you. Do you have a family, significant other um, uh, that you devote time to and try to balance your your work with? Yeah. So I really, I really love my job, and I think uh, I work a lot. And in the past, I think I've been guilty of not having a good work-life balance. Certainly before I became a father, I think I had a pretty skewed work-life balance that skewed really, really heavily towards work. But I have two boys, uh, six and almost four, my three-year-old before next month. And so I'm, I'm pretty protective of my time with them. And, uh, you know, I work, I work hard. I work every weekday. Um, and it's very common for me to work, you know, more than eight hours a day or 10 hours a day. Um, mm -hmm but I'm, I'm very protective of my weekends uh, because that's just time when I can really cut loose with my sons. I mean, typically I work, you know, 
I, as I told you when we were setting up this podcast, I, I get an early start every morning. And I, you know, I work early, I finish up around 4.30 or 5, and then maybe after dinner, after the boys are in bed, if there's a revision or there's a, a, a little thing that I can get to, I might head back to the studio for maybe one more hour of work. But that's, that's how my work week goes, and that's how my work life goes. And I'm better at my job for having that time. Um, I love my job. I really think that I have the best job in the world. On Monday morning, I'm definitely excited to get back to work, but I do need, you know, I, I've, my, my, uh, you know, my glass needs to be refilled a little bit. And I, and I do that, you know, certainly with friends, time with friends, hang out with friends, but also, you know, hang out with my boys and, and doing stuff with them. It's like, it's cliche, but like they do grow up really fast and I'm, I'm, I'm seeing that already. And, um, I could, you know, I could, I could be, you know, if I, if I miss something to, to cram somebody's EQ in on a Saturday afternoon when I could be at the park with them, you know, that's me getting another credit and me getting some amount of money. But, um, I would rather, I'd rather make sure that I have some time to have something at least approximating a balanced life. And, and, and when you, when you make those decisions, you lose a certain amount of business. You know, there's some people who can only, who, who demand to attend and can only work on the weekends. Well, I can't work with you. Yeah. Well, hey, man, it has been absolutely fantastic talking with you. And I do go up to Portland once every so often. And I have got to come and meet you in person and go to coffee and see your place. Yeah, I would I would love it, man. I, I've, we have a, a deep list of coffee places we can go to, and then we can get a beer afterwards to, to help mellow down some of that caffeine that we got. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Uh, also for the audience, uh, telegraphmastering.com. Yep. Uh, that'll be a link in the show notes and, uh, any other, um, points of reference that we should put in the show notes. Do you think Adam? Um, yeah. Telegraphmastering.com. If you want to see my credits or get in touch with me in any way, um, if you want to see, uh, if people are on Instagram, it's just my name, Adam Gonzalez. That's with a, a V instead of a Z. And, um, and yeah, the, I'm, I'm those two places. Well, fantastic. Uh, it was great to have you on and a uh, pleasure to meet you. So thank you again. Yeah, thank you, Matt. This is a lot of fun, man. All right, Adam, take care. Adios, Matt. Adam Gonzalez here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Thanks for being with me today. I want to thank Mr. Cliff Truesdale for our Working Class Audio theme music. And I want to thank Chuck Smith for his voice. And I also want to uh, thank you all for coming back week after week. Spread the word. Tell your friends. And until next time, take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at Gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life. Many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out.